0: We told you a few weeks ago that we have information indicating Russia also has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. So that, Matt, to your question, is an action that Russia has already taken. It's
1: an action that you say that they have taken, but you have shown no evidence
2: to, 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 to confirm that. And I'm going to get to the next question here, which is. What is the evidence that they? I mean, this is like crisis actors, really. This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into now. Um, what evidence do you have to
1: support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the in in the making?
0: Now, this is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have
1: declassified. I think
0: you well, know.
2: Okay. Well, where where is it? Where where is this information?
0: It is intelligence information that we have declassified. Well,
1: where is it? Where's the declassified information?
0: I just delivered it.
1: No, no you made a series of allegations and
0: would statements. You, would you like us to print out the topper? Because you will see a transcript of this briefing that you can print out for no, yourself. That's
2: not evidence, Ned. That's you saying it. That's not evidence. I'm sorry.
3: That was State Department spokesman Ned Price fielding tough questions from AP reporter Matt Lee last week about the U.S. government's claims that Russian forces were planning to mount a phony false flag attack in order to provide a pretext for an invasion of Ukraine. It was a classic moment in which a Biden administration official was forced to answer that most fundamental of questions that should always be asked when the government makes bold assertions about the perfidy of a foreign power. What's the evidence? Price declined to do so, leaving the press and much of the public to wonder, does U.S. intelligence really have the goods to back up its claims? Or is this just one more front in a much larger information warfare battle in which the Biden White House is trying to spook the Kremlin to forego its plans to seize control of a neighboring country? As the world sits on edge waiting for what Vladimir Putin may or may not do, when the U.S. Embassy starts evacuating its embassy in Kyiv, we'll talk to cybersecurity expert Dmitry Alperovich about what we should expect over the next several weeks on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of
2: the United States. and will, to the best of my ability,
3: preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God.
0: So help, so help me God. So help me God. So help
3: me God. So help me God. So help me God. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Kleidman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Victoria a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So
3: look, nobody on this podcast is going to defend Vladimir Putin or suggest that he's a benign actor in the uh, Russia-Ukraine dispute, if that's what we can still call it. But regardless, I thought Matt Lee's uh, questioning of Ned Price was just, you know, really a masterclass lesson in, you know, how we should be questioning at all times government officials when they're telling us something that's dramatic and bold and has all sorts of serious consequences without providing the evidence. And you know, if you listen to the full tape of that grilling of Price by Lee, he goes, Lee goes on to mention, you know, WMD in Iraq and some of the claims about Afghanistan over the years to make the point that just because the U.S. government says something doesn't mean it's true.
0: Yeah, it was great. And we all, all of us reporters, you know, and people who believe in subjecting the government to scrutiny, we're cheering Matt Leon. It was great to have this, you know, cantankerous wire reporter, you know, really going at the uh, officious government spokesman. But it is also Exhibit A for why it is very challenging, if not impossible, for a democracy to enter and thrive in the inf- the uh, information war space. Because you know, Vladimir Putin would turn around and have a reporter like that poisoned. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Thankfully, that yeah. will not happen in uh, in a free society uh, such as ours. But no, you you know, it was very get interesting. Banned
3: from social media, or right. something.
0: Yeah. right, and and you know we'll get into this um, in our in our interview uh, with our guest. But it's fascinating to see how the U.S. government and the U.S. intelligence community um, has made this shift uh, into you know kind of preemptively releasing intelligence and 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 trying to battle. Putin, um, the Russians have been masters at this in the the information battle space, but you know it's not going to be easy. And I think you know, I'm not sure that's that, that's a, um, a a war that we'll be able to win at the end of the day. But we'll see.
1: I just want to add, obviously, the, the U.S. government's intelligence. Uh, reports should be subject to kind of pretty strict scrutiny, and that that they shouldn't be taken at at face value. By the same token, there was a part of me that was listening to that exchange and thinking, "Well, what does this AP reporter want? Does does he actually want to go sit in the signals intelligence, you know?" booth and listen to exactly what was picked up by U.S. intelligence before he'll actually believe it? How do we, I mean, how do we ever know? Well, the short answer the evidence is, is, yes, I'm sure if offered the
3: opportunity to sit in and see in intelligence and see what's, you know, see what the real intelligence is compared to what the government is saying, you know, yeah, that would be the best evidence, right? Now, it's not going to happen. Unless it's made available to you, you can't believe anything that the government says? No, yeah, look, you can't believe anything that the government says. No, of course not. Of, of course you can believe some things that the government says. But look, this, you know, the, the government claims about the Russians in Ukraine have become quite strident over the last few weeks, and they do have a feel to me of these are being rolled out for tactical purposes in an information warfare game that we're playing with the Russians here. And um, maybe the intelligence is totally solid. And they had actual proof of the video. Ned Price was claiming the Russians were actually, he didn't say they had made it. They say they were planning on making it but it is worth remembering that our intelligence on Russia, just as our yeah, intelligence on yeah. Iraq, has not exactly been perfect a little no. more than, no. you know, uh, over a year ago during 2020. That, remember all the and cry about how the Russians were paying bounties for the killing of American soldiers in Afghanistan? And this had people all worked up and, you know, further proof of how, you know, Trump was ignoring what the Russians were doing because he was compromised by Vladimir Putin. And, and, you know, there was a lot to the Russia-Trump connection. I'm not dismissing it. But then we learn, you know, a year later, the government quietly puts out a statement saying, well, our intelligence on the bounties, we have low confidence in. Which was basically saying we have no idea whether this was true or not.
0: Yeah, and look, you know, Matt Lee obviously it was exactly right to press the State Department spokesman as, as, the way yeah. as, as, the way he did as aggressively as he did, and it will have impact because the next time the U.S. government thinks about putting out information, they're going to know that Matt Lee or someone like him is going to be there asking those questions. On, on the other hand. I mean, this is kind of irreconcilable because you also have, from the U.S. government's perspective, assuming what they're putting out there is true, and that's obviously what we're talking about. You can't always assume that. But if it is, then you know, by, by giving more information and explaining how they know these things, that intelligence is going to dry up and their sources may, you know, may be killed. Yeah. So it's one of those uh,
1: Maybe, tough situations yeah, that in yeah, some ways, both
0: everyone is right. Although I will say Ned Price, uh, the spokesman, could have been more artful in how he uh, interacted with Matt Lee.
1: Yeah. I mean, it truth that the, the audience for that statement might have been people in Russia, not people in the United States. It was basically the United States sort of you know bragging about how thoroughly we've infiltrated their communication systems. So who knows? But also I would just add that at the end of the day, within a few days we may actually have real truth on the ground, not just reports of SIGINT that's been captured. We may actually be seeing weapons fired.
3: Yeah, yeah. just a couple of quick points here. One is clearly they could have been a bit more forthcoming than Price was on this. Obviously, nobody... You know, they don't need to identify sources or even say they have sources, but they can say something about, you know, how confident they are in this. Exactly. No, you're absolutely deemed. right about that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, has this been, you know, vetted by the DNI?
0: Do they concur? Yeah. But to simply repeat the assertions. Right. I mean, there's yeah. something about that doesn't seem... You know, like, uh, you know, a a, a spokesman, someone representing the government in a free democratic society. (laughs) You can't just say the same thing over and over again because the U.S. government is saying it. Yeah, it is true. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And Victoria, before you said so, therefore, we don't we shouldn't believe anything the U.S. government says. No, I believe and put this in context, there are more than 100000 Russian troops massed on the Ukrainian border. That's real. That's something that can well be there's satellite <laughs> images yeah, there's that satellite prove that.
0: images, right? I Commercial know. satellite, by so the way, not government. My point
3: is in bringing this up is not to whitewash Vladimir Putin and what the Russians are up to. It's merely to point out that when the US government makes claims, we need to press them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's been more than enough credulous reporting over the uh, last 20 decades of of last last 10 decades or of uh, what the U.S. government says leading us into not. Right. All that said, I mean,
3: it is pretty incredible. We are taping this on Monday afternoon and, you know, you listen to everything (laughs) the U.S. government officials are saying. And there could be a major land war in Europe. (laughs) This week, uh, Amazing. you know, it, it's kind of mind blowing in a way, and uh, and and pretty scary because uh, if nothing else, military conflicts have a way of spiraling out of control and going in directions that you didn't plan for.
0: And, and you know, it's scary for another reason, which is that, I and mean, we don't know how it'll play out. We don't know uh, at the end of the day, you know, maybe. Putin has miscalculated and this will hurt him. But it also may be that Putin wins here and that- What's that scenario? How does he win? Well, the scenario is that he invades uh, Ukraine. He topples the government there. Uh, There are a lot of sanctions, but he weathers the storm. And he's changed the security architecture in the region. And he's sent a very strong message to other autocrats out there that- you can do these things with impunity, and meanwhile, he's also established closer ties to our main rival in the world, China. Um, yeah. So the narrative uh, for some years now has been that Putin has been able to get away with this, and that he's he and other autocrats are are winning. Um, and that is, you know, at a time when democracies around the world are pretty fragile, including our own. That's a devastating message. So the stakes are pretty high.
3: They are, to put it mildly, (laughs) that's an understatement. So we've got a great guest to talk about it. But before we do, there was some late breaking news on another front that's of great interest to us journalists, and that is a federal judge has just tossed the lawsuit brought by Sarah Palin against The New York Times for defaming her in an editorial while the jury Was deliberating whether to rule in Putin's Putin's favor, in Palin's favor, or uh, you could see Russia. (laughs) Yeah, you could see Russia, (laughs) you know, uh, from her living room. uh, Whether in to rule in Palin's favor or the Times' favor, this is not what I would have expected, especially while the jury was deliberating. Victoria, is this very common?
1: It's not very common at all, but it is something that is that is allowed for in federal courts. It's a, called a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. It essentially allows a judge to overturn what a jury may come back with or to direct a verdict from the jury. It's procedurally acceptable in federal court, but it is something that is very rarely exercised by judges. I think the other thing that Judge Rakoff, who, uh, who issued this ruling, made perfectly clear was one way or another, this case is going to be appealed. And uh, we're going to be seeing this go up to the Second Circuit, possibly up to the Supreme Court. Um, it's clearly part of an effort to rework libel laws in the United States, Whatever comes, uh, this is not the end of the Palin versus New York Times story.
0: Victoria, if, if it's appealed, the appeals court or the Supreme Court would have to send it back for retrial, right?
1: You know, it sort of, it sort of depends. They could obviously, uh, first of all, the, the Judge Rakoff indicated that the jury is going to continue to deliberate. So the jury may come back with a, with a, a verdict that goes against Sarah Palin as well. Uh, so you could have both a judge and a jury kind of deciding that she has no case. And then it's, it's unclear exactly what the basis for appeal would be from Sarah Palin. So I can't can't say for sure whether or not it would go back for another trial. The courts could just rework libel law. The standard, well, right, and that's the point. that's, that's the point. That's
3: the scary proposition. And the reason for, yeah, that Judge Rakoff
0: tossed this, this suit is because they didn't meet, uh, because Sarah appeal didn't meet this, the very tough uh, threshold here, which is uh, you have to prove actual malice. And that's the issue that could get revisited uh, by the Supreme Court, likely will get revisited. I think some of the conservative justices on the court have already said that that standard yeah. ought to be revisited. Well, well, ta- Thomas
3: yeah. and Alito yes. have, and worth noting that they are increasingly being joined by voices on the left. Victoria, your ally, who we've talked about on the show a number of times, uh, Mark Elias recently tweeted, complaining about the press coverage of the voting rights issue. Mark Elias being the lead lawyer for the Democrats and challenging voting rights laws around the country. And therefore it's time to revisit Times versus Sullivan, which was the Supreme Court ruling well settled precedent, well, long before, or at least a decade before Roe versus Wade, Times versus Sullivan was codified by the Supreme Court or came down by the Supreme Court with a ruling that set that actual malice standard. And now you have liberal Democrats like Mark Elias saying, well, we need to revisit it because I don't like the way the press is covering my issue. I assume, Victoria, you take issue with Mark Elias on this one.
1: Well, I think maybe what Mark Elias is trying to say is be careful what you ask for, Sarah Palin, because on the one hand, you might win your lawsuit against The New York Times, but look out for the lawsuits that are going to possibly be brought against Fox, OAM, and a whole host of right wing oh, media organizations. I don't, I don't organizations. Think liberal
3: Democrats are, you know, trembling over that. I think they would love to do that. And maybe that's the point that he yeah. Right. I think I think right. that's what
1: I, I think that's a little bit what Mark Elias was, was trying to say, which is that there's a there's a certain mutual assured destruction to reworking New York Times v. Sullivan and maybe both parties ought to step back from the brink. Um, no, he wasn't saying step back from the brink. I suppose that's where Mark Elias, one of many places possibly that Mark Elias and I uh, uh, separate and uh It's definitely, I think New York Times versus Sullivan probably ought to just stay in place. Yeah.
0: So before we go, we were talking about Judge Rakoff's decision to decide this case while the jury was still deliberating. And um, our skullduggery regular media critic, uh, Eric Wemple, posted a Twitter thread. This is uh, Judge Rakoff's uh, own words explaining why he did this. So I'm just going to read this quickly. The more I thought about it over the weekend, the more I thought that waiting was unfair to both sides. We've had a very, we've had very full argument on this. I know where I'm coming out and I ought to therefore apprise the parties of that. On the other hand, this is the kind of case that will inevitably go up on appeal and the court of appeals will greatly benefit from knowing how the jury decided. So for example, if I were to dismiss the case as a matter of law for failure to prove an essential element and the jury were to decide the contrary, then on appeal, the Court of Appeals wouldn't have to send it back for a new trial. They could reinstate the verdict. So obviously, hmm. Judge Rakoff has thought this through. It All makes right. some sense to me.
3: Oh, let's uh, now let's wait for the verdict, <laughs> which will tell us a lot. All right. Well, we got a great guest. So um getting back. And I'm not, to and I'm not on. Oh, yes. Uh, You have to, uh, you have some, you know, legal business. I have have some legal business to to attend to. Exactly. Hope you're not in any trouble. Uh, Anyway, um, uh, let's, uh, we got Dmitry Alperovitch, cybersecurity expert on Russia, Ukraine. So let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Dmitry Alperovich, one of the leading cyber researchers when it comes to Russian malign activity. Dmitri was a co-founder of CrowdStrike and is now the head of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a think tank. Dmitry, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Well, I well remember uh, when we first talked uh, back uh, four or five years ago when I was getting started to writing a book about Vladimir Putin's interference in the 2016 U.S. election, and uh, I think you may have been the first interview I did and sort of a guidebook to— what to look for and what to expect from Putin and the Russians. And here we are, uh, so many years later, still uh, trying to figure out what is Vladimir Putin up to. I know you have for some time been expecting, as the U.S. government now says loudly, we're going to see an invasion of Ukraine by the Russians. On the other hand, just today as we speak on Monday, Putin and uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, had a little uh, press thing on Russian TV in which Lavrov seemed to talk about more diplomacy. So where do you stand right now? Are you still expecting an invasion of Ukraine this week, as the U.S. government seems to be strongly indicating?
2: I am. I've been expecting an invasion to happen this winter. Since about early December. And one thing that's really important to understand here is that this is not some sort of sudden escalation where Putin got out of bed in December and decided to build up forces and invade Ukraine. This has been methodically planned for well over a year with the buildup of forces initially taking place in the spring. There's been a little bit of pullback in the summer, but most of the equipment stayed behind and then a continuation in the fall, I think he made a decision pretty early on, maybe last January, or February, to, to do this. And I think he has not seen anything arise from the diplomatic efforts thus far that would make him change his mind. And the key thing about this week is that the buildup will finally be completed this week, uh, probably as soon as tomorrow, Tuesday. And uh, that pretty much means that he can give a command to go at any time after that.
3: So I guess my chief question is why? Why is he doing this, knowing that it's going to provoke an international uproar, that there will be severe sanctions against the Russians by the United States, by the European Union and others? He will become even more of an international pariah. What's in it for Putin to do this, and what's the urgency about actually starting a war?
2: Well, first of all, he's not going to say that he's starting a war. There's going to be pretext, probably, and and we're seeing signs of this already. The pretext is going to be over Donbass. The Russian television has been very aggressive lately talking about how Ukraine is supposedly about to invade Donbass and take it back by force. So Vladimir Putin, when he says that he's not planning to invade, of course he would say that because what they're going to say as as soon as potentially this week is that Ukrainians have launched an offensive in Donbass and the Russians have to respond to that in order to defend Russian people in the Donbass region. So this is going to be portrayed as a self-defense action, not as an aggression and the pretext is, is already well underway. In terms of why, you know, he has realized over the last few years that everything that he has done since 2014, the taking of Crimea, the starting of the insurgency, then in Donbass, has only pushed Ukraine further to the West. And he has now realized that diplomatic efforts, pressures on Ukraine, including a variety of cyber attacks that he has uh, orchestrated against the country over the last eight years, have not worked and that the only way that he can bring Ukraine back into its sphere of influence, which he's very keen on, is through military force that will result in a regime change and, and a change of government in Kiev. And that is why he's fundamentally doing this. Uh, you know, He has realized, ironically, that the only thing that's worse than Ukraine being in NATO is Ukraine not being in NATO, because over the last eight years, you've seen much more NATO infrastructure being deployed to Ukraine, not just weapons, but advisors and trainers and uh, reconnaissance capability. You now have almost constant reconnaissance flights being flown by the US Air Force and other NATO members in Ukraine on the borders of Russia, collecting intelligence. So none of that is acceptable to him, and he is trying to fundamentally change that status quo. Dimitri, um, is he right about this?
0: Or uh, or is this a a huge miscalculation along the lines uh, that Isakov was uh, alluding to before?
2: I think the big unknown here is not whether he actually does it or not. I think uh, the likelihood is very high, as the U.S. government has said, that he's going to launch an invasion. What no one knows, is how, including him, is how it's going to end. You know, There are people that think this is going to be a quagmire, not unlike Iraq and Afghanistan for us. But there is, I think, a credible argument to be made that this will be much easier for him that the balance of forces is so overwhelming on the Russian side, including with their long-range fires, their artillery that they've brought to, to bear uh, to the borders of Ukraine, the ballistic missile systems, the air, uh, manned and unmanned aircraft, the bom- bomber aviation that is going to be ready to rain absolute hell down on Ukrainian forces. And by the way, the Russians won't care about casualties. They won't care about trying to be very discerning in their targeting So this is going to be very, very bad for the Ukrainian forces, and the problem that they're going to have is that eastern Ukraine is not very defendable. You have a very flat terrain, you have virtually no forest cover, so it's not an ideal situation for an insurgency movement. The western Ukraine is is much different, uh, but he doesn't really need to, to go into western Ukraine. He can drive to Kiev, he can be there in a few days, and he can surround it and put pressure on, on the government to resign and essentially accommodate uh, a pro-Russian uh, government taking place.
3: David Ignatius in the Washington Post today sort of laid out what he says U.S. officials are expecting. And I just want to, it's, it's pretty striking, and I want to get your take on this. And I'm quoting Ignatius here, the dirty part of this war would be fought by special forces. In the hours before an invasion, the Metsnas, units of the GRU, that's Russian military intelligence, and the intelligence teams of the FSB, might seize key targets in Kyiv and other cities, such as radio and television stations, power facilities, and government installations. Assassination teams might target senior officials. Russian false flag operations that appeared to be Ukrainian would confound and confuse. Russia would seize control of the electronic warfare space so that it could jam communications by Ukrainian government or military commanders. Ukrainian troops might want to fight, but they would have difficulty coordinating their actions with commanders. Does that sound right to you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that they're going to do is probably free people that uh, the Ukrainians have arrested or put under house arrest that are pro-Russian so that they can localize this conflict as quickly as possible. Unlike the Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're going to try to put a local face on this uh, government as quickly as possible, um, not unlike what they've done in Chechnya uh, with Kadyrov, uh, putting him in place uh, in the early days of that war the second time around and uh, giving them local resources to control the population. They're gonna try to do the same thing here. They're not looking to, I believe, uh, have a prolonged occupation. They're gonna wanna turn this over to uh, Ukrainian forces, pro-Russian Ukrainian forces, and leave as rapidly as possible. Assassination teams? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Russians have practiced assassinations almost as an art for years. All you have to do is look at Navalny with the chemical weapons, Litvinenko with polonium. I don't think they're going to use chemical or or, uh, radiological weapon in this scenario. But absolutely, as people talk about the potential for insurgency, make no mistake, the Russian intelligence on the ground in eastern Ukraine and western Ukraine for years have been identifying people that would be leaders, potentially, of this insurgency, and they're going to try to neutralize those people within initial hours of the conflict.
0: You know, Debiji, one of the things that surprised me hearing uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, the national security advisor, talk about how this would uh, unfold, how it would start, is with uh, missiles and aerial bombardment, when we had all thought uh, that the first move uh, would be like a massive cyber attack to go after Ukraine's critical infrastructure. Uh, Is that not what you expect? Tell us what you think will happen in the cyber realm.
2: No, I, I, I fundamentally agree with Jake. I, I don't think that cyber will play a huge role in this. I think uh, if, if uh, the Russians are going to do what I expect them to do, they may actually turn off the internet in ukraine because the priority for them would be to shut off communications shut off the ability for command and control over ukrainian forces prevent the ukrainian government from communicating uh with its own people and prevent the people from recording videos and trying to uh, get them to western sources about what's truly taking place so as michael has said uh quoting david ignatius electronic warfare is going to play a huge role in this they've amassed enormous capabilities on the borders of ukraine to potentially shut off most radio signals within the country, at least within the eastern part. So expect cell phones not to work, expect TV and radio to be offline, expect satellite phones to be interfered with as well. And they can easily take out the internet by targeting about 10 different internet exchange points that are largely located in Kyiv and Kharkiv through airstrikes, they can basically shut off connectivity uh, to the outside world for much of the country. So I think that'll be their preference. If they don't do that, they might engage in some tactical cyber operations that might uh, yield a temporary military advantage, primarily in the areas of mobilization, maybe targeting mobilization databases that the Ukrainians keep of volunteers and reservists that they want to mobilize in the time of war, uh, perhaps targeting the communication systems, obviously the media. You might see attacks on the power grid as well. But it's much more effective to do that kinetically because you know for a fact that when you make a crater that nothing is going to arise from that versus a cyber attack where uh, the Ukrainians may uh, bring back um, things up uh, uh, very quickly. In fact, if if there's one thing that the Ukrainians have learned to do in the last eight years and their cyber defenses are not that great, but they've learned how to do recovery very, very quickly. In fact, they, they can do that better than we can.
0: You know, I've heard some speculation among law enforcement that simultaneous to a kinetic attack on Ukraine The Russians might actually attack U.S. networks with their cyber capabilities. Does that make sense to you? Do you think that's something that they might do? And if so, So why? I don't
2: don't think that the Russians will be the first ones to escalate this conflict outside of Ukraine. In fact, everything they've been doing over the last couple of months has been sending signals to the United States and to Europe that they don't want this escalation vis-a-vis the West in case of an invasion. For the first time ever, they took action a few weeks ago against Russian ransomware criminals, arresting about two dozen individuals who were members of the Our Evil group and, and Darkside, that target Colonial, and Kaseya back last summer. They're doing this uh, because uh, they, they essentially want to engage in what I call ransomware diplomacy, sending a signal to the West that we can be very helpful to you on a wide range of things, including cybercrime, but we're not going to do any of that, obviously, if you lay severe sanctions on our economy. And I think that's the, the situation in which this can escalate. If we indeed are going to try to choke the Russian economy through sanctions on their banking sector, targeting the top three banks like uh, VTB, Sberbank, and Gazprom Bank, that's equivalent to targeting JP Morgan, Bank of America, and Goldman Sachs with sanctions, right? That would be devastating to the Russian economy if we're indeed going to do that or prohibiting export of semiconductors to Russia. That that can throw them back into the Stone Ages as well. Very devastating. So if if those sanctions go into place, I expect the gloves to come off and a variety of things to be done by Russia in response. Some of it will be in cyberspace, some of it not, because people forget outside of oil and gas, we actually buy a lot of critical materials from Russia and from Ukraine. For example, 90% of neon for our semiconductor industry in the United States comes from Ukraine, which the Russians could shut off in the case of an invasion. We buy titanium for our jet engines from Russia. Russia produces two-thirds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer that's used in, in agriculture. There's a whole slew of things that they can do to drive inflation into double digits and uh, cause severe impacts to the U.S. and global economy.
3: You mentioned, Dimitri, a couple times, if those sanctions go into place. Now, Jake Sullivan and other administration officials have tried to be clear that they will, but the way you expressed it, it sounds like you may have some doubts.
2: Well, I think sanctions are going to go into place, absolutely, and they should be. The question is which sanctions matter the most. And I think there is a way to enact sanctions that will be harmful to the leadership of Russia without hurting their people, and that may not provoke a response So, for example, targeting oligarchs, um, targeting particular individuals within Russian government. I fully expect, and President Biden said as much, sanctions to be placed on Nord Stream 2. Uh, That won't actually affect the Russians uh, uh, very much because the whole idea behind Nord Stream 2 is to bypass the Ukrainian pipelines and not allow Ukrainians to extract transit fees and and, and coerce Russia. If Russia is able to bring Ukraine back into its sphere of influence, the importance of Nord Stream two uh, dissipates dramatically for Russia. But nevertheless, it's a symbolic move. And one of the things that I've argued for, and President Macron seems to have echoed my comments this past week, is is, is a military response. Where you know, if you listen what, uh, to what Putin has said repeatedly, is a huge concern to him. In addition to Ukraine and other Soviet republics joining NATO, one of the things that he is really desperately afraid of is our air defense systems that have been put into Romania and Poland that have uh, missiles that he thinks theoretically could re- reach Moscow within minutes. He is consistently for many years have said that that is an escalatory move and that is very, very dangerous and Russia is afraid of it. Well, if he's afraid of it, let's give more of that. Let's deploy additional batteries uh, of these systems armed with tomahawks in the Baltics and, and surround Russia and use it to build up leverage for potential negotiations over Ukraine down the road.
3: That sounds like escalation and, and, and a path by which things could spiral out of control.
2: Well, there's going to be escalation either way. You know, Vladimir Putin is going to escalate this if he invades Ukraine, and we're going to respond— And I think we just need to be thoughtful about how we respond. That's not going to drive us towards war. I I, I don't think that the missile batteries will necessarily drive us towards war, but but could potentially bring them to the negotiation table. And the economic sanctions, particularly the ones that have been talked about in the press, I fear will have devastating effects on our economy at the time when inflation is already at record highs in the last couple of decades. On our our economy. On our economy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Russians are going to retaliate. They're not going to take the sitting sitting down. And there's a lot they can do to harm us, even outside of energy, which I don't think they will actually use energy because it is such a big uh, part of their GDP. In fact, that's going to be helpful to them. You know, energy prices will go up in case of war and they can continue sale uh, selling oil and gas and making money while they're cutting supplies of critical materials that are so vital to our economy.
0: What do you think of this uh, shift in U.S. Uh, strategy to preemptively release uh, highly sensitive intelligence that reports to show what the Russians are doing in terms of uh, false flag operations, creating this video, this fake video with crisis actors, and that's supposed to show, you know, civilians being killed by Ukrainians, and I guess the Brits also. Release this information about uh, the Russians going in and and replacing the government. Yeah, they were talking about a coup. coup. Right, exactly. But we have Um,
3: seen no evidence from the government to back up, from the U.S. government to back up what it is asserting the Russians are planning here.
2: Well, I I think they're trying to do everything they can to prevent this war, and they're thinking that releasing this information and releasing uh, really the extent of our penetration of of Russian communications, presumably here, will give Putin some pause. I don't think it's going to work, but uh, we should absolutely try it. Uh, One thing that we should be mindful of is that, you know, I believe the US government has collected intelligence about all the things that uh, they're talking about. I don't think they're lying about this, but we should be mindful that if we're intercepting communication, even between two high ranking officials within US government, uh, within Russian government talking about this, it doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. They could be thinking through options. They could be talking about hypotheticals. They, they could be uh, knowing that they're being tapped, they're actually feeding us misinformation. So we should be- yeah. or very Or we
3: believing. are engaging in our own form of information warfare, trying to spook Putin to suggesting, you know, to psych him out by calling his bluff or- or purportedly calling his bluff.
2: Well, I think anything we can do to discredit this pretext that he's going to have, that he's not invading, that he's doing a, an action that is uh, defending the Russian people in eastern Ukraine, we need to be doing that because we can't let him spin this conflict if it does come to fruition that he did not start this war. That has to be clear to everyone.
0: So what do you think the likelihood of is of uh, not a full-scale invasion where, you know, that? Tanks are rolling into Kiev, but something short of that, where you know the Russian army, you know, sort of chews off a piece of eastern Ukraine to solidify Donbass, maybe uh, creates a land bridge, you know, to Crimea, but not you know the full-scale invasion that people are talking about. Do you think that's that's there's a good chance that that's the way he he
2: would go? I don't. I think that the choice be, uh, for him is really binary. It's either he goes all in or he doesn't go at all, because any Half measures like this, doesn't actually accomplish anything. He gets all the pain of retaliation from the West, and he doesn't actually fundamentally change Ukrainian government, drive it in a uh, pro-Russia direction. In fact, the opposite would happen. Ukraine would become more pro-Western, there would be more NATO troops, more NATO weaponry in Ukraine, so it it actually would be much worse for him.
0: Okay, so you obviously think that this is going to happen, but just as a thought exercise, if he decides not to invade Ukraine, how does he kind of climb down from the tree that he's in right now? How, does he, how could he do it in a way that could save some face for him?
2: You know, th- this is where I have a lot of trouble and that's wh- one of the reasons why I believe it's gonna happen is that there's not a lot of ways that he can climb down at least internationally. Domestically he can because domestically he has not really ramped up the russian public for this war. So he can simply say what are you talking about? I never planned to invade anyone. This was just exercises even though clearly this force that he's built up as an invasion force, it's not a it's not an exercise force. But internationally he will lose all credibility. Anytime that he issues threats or attempts to draw the west into negotiations in the future, they'll call his bluff. So it puts him in a very precarious position. Now You know, you can't can't imagine sort of as an outside chance that perhaps at the very last minute, Western countries will come together and offer him some substantive concessions on NATO presence in Ukraine, maybe even something that's carefully worded about how Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO anytime soon. I I
0: saw, by the way, the the, uh, Ukrainian ambassador to Britain suggests that uh, Ukraine may be willing to do that. I'm not sure what that was all about.
2: Yeah, he did that on a radio show in the UK. Hours later, government officials in Kiev slapped him down and said that there's no plans to do any of that. So um, they walked ro- it back. A rogue ambassador. Like, okay. Exact, exactly. <laughs>
3: well, uh, what about but- uh, Zelensky saying today that, well, NATO is, you know, that's an aspiration. It's not anything that uh, we are planning on
2: joining. No, no- the problem is, it doesn't actually matter what Zelensky says. It doesn't matter what Macron says. It doesn't matter what Chancellor Schultz says. The only thing that's going to matter for Putin is what the United States says, because he has seen in the past uh, us roll over our allies, frankly, back in 2008 at the uh, Budapest summit of NATO, where the declaration was made that Ukraine is going to be, and Georgia are going to be invited to join NATO, both the Germans and the French opposed it. And uh, the Bush administration at the time basically rolled over them and forced them to sign off on on that proclamation that I think in many ways led us to to this point now. So I don't think he's going to care about what any of these people say. He's going to care about what President Biden says. And I don't think this administration is going to be willing to give that concession, which, by the way, is very ironic because when President Biden says that he's not going to deploy American troops to fight Russia and Ukraine, and they've been very, very clear about that, both the president and Jake Sullivan, they're in effect saying that- we're not going to extend Article 5 mutual defense considerations for Ukraine. We're not going to protect Ukraine, which really is, is well, which what makes sense part of because but they're Article not part 5 of
3: is for NATO. They're not a member right. of NATO.
2: But, but my question is, if we are not willing to send American troops to die for Ukraine today, when are we ever going to be willing to do that? And, and uh, you know, is the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO at all realistic? And I would argue it's not. And, but the fact that we're not willing to say those words – is gonna get him to trigger this war that's gonna be so horrible for Ukrainian civilians and uh, the nature of European security. It's just so mind boggling to me.
3: You know, uh, we had uh, Alexander Vindman on uh, the podcast last week who criticized the Biden administration uh, to some extent, said he th- thought their responses had been too little, too late. Taking the use of American troops off the table, he said was wrong, he said what we needed was more strategic ambiguity as we have in Taiwan. Is he right?
2: No, there, there's no chance that Russia, I mean, the United States is going to go to war with Russia and nuclear power over Ukraine. Uh, that was never credible. In fact, Putin is sending a message right now by having nuclear exercises l- later this month that he's moved up from from ha- being held in September is basically a message, don't even think about trying anything. So that, that ambiguity would not have accomplished anything. It would have potentially only caused more escalation that would be very, very unhelpful. The reality is no American after spending two decades fighting wars in the Middle East is going to want to get into another war, particularly with a nuclear power like Russia, not over Ukraine. So, Dmitry, bottom
0: line, assuming you're right and Putin invades Ukraine. Uh, they are successful in changing the regime there. The U- U.S. imposes uh, very harsh sanctions. There's some escalation there. How does this play out, and what what are the consequences of you know a, a successful uh, invasion and toppling of the government um, in Ukraine? Not just for the Ukrainians, obviously that would be tragic, but for the for the world and for U.S. interests.
2: Yeah, unfortunately it'll be bad for all parties involved. As I mentioned, I think Russia can retaliate significantly in the economic sphere against us and and really impact the livelihood of people living in America, the middle class in particular, I also think it's going to drive them uh, even closer towards China. Uh, we have seen that over the last few, few weeks with uh, Biden's Xi meeting uh, right before the, lim- I mean, uh, sorry, the uh, Putin Xi meeting right before the Olympics. You're going to see probably uh, even more deterioration, the diplomatic relationship between Russia and the West, uh, if not complete disintegration of that relationship, which is only going to drive them more towards supporting these uh, nefarious actors like North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela. The Russians actually, incidentally, have been very, very helpful to us in the JCPOA negotiations, the Iran nuclear deal negotiations, and, and getting the Iranians to come to the table and uh, negotiate, hopefully in good faith. I expect if if we escalate dramatically that they're going to uh, backpedal on that and they're going to offer Iranians all kinds of help, potentially military help, maybe even help with their civilian nuclear program as a way to hammer back at us. So there is a variety of things that they can do to us that will be very harmful to our national security interests. And, and obviously, there's a lot of pain we can inflict on them as well. So it's, it's not going to be a pretty picture for the world, I'm afraid.
3: On the other hand, you know, when I hear you, Dmitry, you t- you talked earlier about how the Russians have been helpful of late on ransomware matters. Um, you just mentioned they've been helpful on Iranian, trying to get an Iranian nuclear deal back on track. I don't know. It sounds like there are opportunities there for diplomacy and maybe cutting some sort of deal with Putin that gives him something in Ukraine in exchange for... Help on cyber, help on an Iranian nuclear deal might not be such a bad option.
2: You know, I personally think so. I think it's realistically too late to do that. The right time would have been about six months ago when you had that famous Biden-Putin meeting in Geneva. If we had offered him concessions on NATO membership for Ukraine, potentially NATO infrastructure in Ukraine, that could have forestalled um, this action potentially. I think at this point, he's gained way too much leverage with the forces he's built up to settle just for that and what he would want, we could not give him. Um, but look, you know, as I said, the message he's sending very clear to us is that we don't want to break in diplomatic relations with the West. Ukraine is our sphere of influence. We're going to do what we want in Ukraine. Let's not uh, get into a conflict, not a kinetic conflict, but an economic and diplomatic conflict over Ukraine. That's what he, his preference would be. I doubt that the administration or, frankly, even Congress would bite uh, on that offer, but uh, he's certainly um, extending his hand on that.
3: All right. Well, unless uh, Danny's got any more on Ukraine, I got one question for you on a completely different subject. Um, There was a lot of, uh, if you were following Twitter over the weekend and uh, various websites, uh, there was a lot of fuss over a filing by John Durham, the special counsel uh, appointed by Bill Barr, continued by Merrick Garland, into the um, Russia investigation of Trump. And there was an indictment, you may recall, some months back about uh, a uh, computer lawyer, uh, Michael Sussman, who was charged for lying to the FBI. He's denied those charges. But in his most recent filing, and this is about the claims that there was some sort of nefarious Internet connection between Trump Tower and the Alpha Bank in Russia. And Durham wrote in his most recent filing, the government's evidence at trial... Will also establish that among the Internet Data Tech Executive One, that's somebody who was feeding this information to Michael Sussman, who, which he then provided to the FBI, were exploiting the domain system, name system, DNS, Internet traffic pertaining to a, one, a particular healthcare provider, Trump Tower, to Donald Trump Central Park West apartment building, and for the executive office of the president of the United States. The tech executive's employer had come to access and maintain dedicated servers for the executive office of the president as part of a sensitive arrangement whereby it provided DNS resolution services to the executive office of the president. The tech executive and his associates exploited this arrangement by mining the executive office's DNS traffic, and other data for the purpose of gathering derogatory information about Donald Trump. A lot of us who are steeped in this read that and other matters that were in the Durham filing and were scratching our heads trying to figure out what this means, what it adds up to, if anything. You're a computer uh, cybersecurity expert. Give us your take.
2: Well, first of all, I have no direct knowledge of what has happened here. I have been paying close attention to it, but uh, you know, it sounds like you had a company that was providing some services, some services to to the Ukrainian government. Uh, no, I mean, to the American effect. government. To the American government. I'm sorry, we're yes. past right <laughs> now. And the data collected from that service was being used, uh, that's what Durham is a legend, to essentially uh, mine this data in this investigation of Alpha Bank and Trump Tower. And uh, you know, if that was done you know, at a minimum, that was uh, probably inappropriate. Uh, I'm not sure if it was illegal or not, but they definitely should not have been doing that. And um, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, we're at this point.
3: What do you get from DNS uh, traffic? I mean, as, as you know, the Trump allies are out there and Trump himself saying, aha, this is proof that I was being spied on while I was president. I've been vindicated. That's what I said originally. And here we have the proof.
2: Yeah, so DNS traffic is not content. DNS, of course, the domain name system, is this basically internet's address book. Where when you want to try access a website like Google or uh, you know NewYorkTimes.com or something like that, uh, you have to go to DNS to get the address of the website so you can actually connect to it and read the content. So you can't look at content by just looking at DNS traffic, but you can certainly see. Which websites people are trying to go to, which servers they're communicating with, um, so there are definitely privacy issues associated with that, and it's not good that this data is being mined without permission.
3: Um, and did you think there was anything to the claims about an Alpha Bank Trump Tower connection?
2: No, I never believed in that when I saw that reporting publicly. Uh, back in 2016, it never made any sense to me. So, and I guess the government uh, established that as well. Yeah,
3: I have to say it never made any sense to me either. I never quite understood what, why anybody would go through such contortions and what you would get from it. There were lots of other, if there was a flow of information, there were a lot better ways to do it than... um, Uh, this obscure way. But anyway, um, Dimitri, I want to thank you. Great insights. And we'll see as the week unfolds and the month unfolds uh, whether your, you know, grim prediction uh, holds up that there will be a full-scale Russian invasion. I should point out that when Putin seized Crimea in 2014, it came right after the end of the Olympics in Sochi right so there is a parallel
2: I, 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 will, here. I will I will I will say this whenever he decides to invade, if he does decide to invade, I don't think Olympics will have anything to do with this. This idea that he's going to wait till the end of the Olympics never made any sense to me because, again, he's not going to portray this as an invasion. He's going to portray this as a self-defense move, defending the lives of the Russians. And he's not going to wait to defend the lives of the Russians until after the Olympics. So uh, he didn't wait back uh, back in 2008 during the Georgia conflict in the midst of the Beijing Olympics. I don't think he he would wait now for that reason. If he waits, it's, it's because um, he He believes that tactically, because of military situation on the ground or diplomatic efforts, uh, it makes sense for him to wait. But you know, I'll also say that I very much hope that I'm wrong and that he's not going to invade, because um, if he does, it's going to be bad, first and foremost, for Ukrainians, but it's going to be bad for Americans, it's going to be bad for Europeans, it's going to be bad for the Russians.
3: I think a lot of people are hoping and praying you're wrong, so we will find out soon enough. Dimitri, thanks a lot for joining us.
2: Thank you.